0: Chapters 3 and 4 of Acts. Wow, there's a lot going on. Peter and John have followed the Lord's will all the way into trouble and danger. They've healed a man with a disability in the name of Christ. And then, as people rush in astonishment to try to make sense of what has just happened, they tell the flabbergasted onlookers the good news that Jesus is God's appointed saviour and Lord. Good news, but if you're a Jerusalem elite who has overseen the execution of Jesus just a few weeks before, that's very bad news. You want to bury this name, not having people running around healing in this name. And so Peter and John get arrested, they get thrown into jail. People are getting saved left, right and centre and shipping their allegiance to Jesus. Jesus. But the apostles are in prison. They're then taken to trial. But they don't apologize and back down. They hold their ground. And then they are ordered to be silent. If you pick up verse uh, 16 of Acts 4, the response of the reading elite is very illogical. They say, everybody knows that this is an outstanding miracle, that this, this is true... But then they flip their logic and say to Peter and John, you must not tell anybody about this. You are ordered to silence. Well, Peter and John aren't going to do that, are they? Verse 19, well, you judge for yourselves. We can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They're threatened, and they're effectively let out on license. It's like they're tagged. One more misdemeanor, one more healing, one more preaching, they'll be back in things will get worse. They go home with the threats ringing in their ears. I bet they were deeply shaken. They were, of course, excited because they had seen the power of Jesus and they'd seen people come at this healing to trust in him. But but they must have been feeling thrown and and anxious. This is a state versus Peter and John. They're not in the clear. So what are they going to do? What would would you do if there was a, a, a real threat on your liberty for being a distinctive follower of Jesus? I think we'd go home. We'd tell enough of our Christian friends about our experiences for them to be deeply impressed. And then we would quietly go, well, quiet, wouldn't we? That was too stressful, too risky. Being an out-and-out follower of Jesus is is too dangerous. We're going to be a quieter, wise follower of Jesus. And apart from God's sovereign power in our lives, we might do that. And the apostles might do that. But what they and their fellow believers do next tells us what I want us to see this morning about prayer. Our subject, as you know, is prayer. We've been in this subject for a month. This is our fifth and final week for now. We've been reminded the last four weeks how we've been created by God to depend upon him and to enjoy that dependence expressed through prayer. We've been reminded that God hears our prayers because he's our loving Heavenly Father. He loves us and he longs to hear our prayers and meet our needs. We've learned that we can bring our pain, especially our pain, to God as we pray. And we learned last week that God works in us as we pray to shape our character as Christians so that we walk through tough circumstances with conviction and faith. And today as we come to verses 23 to 31 of Acts chapter 4, particularly we're looking at how God calls us to pray together with faith and certainty. Now, there are six things that I want us to see and to appreciate this morning as we're looking at this topic of prayer with this passage in front of us. I need to get into them. The first is slightly longer. The next five will be slightly briefer. But here's the first lesson. It's simple. It's clear in this text and many others. The first lesson is this, verses 23 and 24. Believers pray together. Believers pray together. Peter and John return, they're released, and they tell their story. I bet the church was both amazed at the healing and the response to Christ from others, but also shocked and scared, the arrest, the harassment, the threats. But actually, maybe these first believers would, were not so shocked, not so surprised. Jesus told them that they would, would face danger, potentially harassment, worse, for following him. And this harassment and the fact that Jesus is Lord get them raising their voices together in prayer to God. They don't collapse together. They don't despair together. They don't just hide or escape together. They stand their ground. Actually, they kneel on it, quite likely. And they raise their voices and they pray together. Now, by Wednesday of last week, I seriously contemplated preaching on 14 passages in the book of Acts. I seriously considered that. I decided against it because I thought, we'll all get indigestion. But, but my disappointment in not going that way was, I thought, well, at least we'll all get the point, myself included. Because there are 14 occasions in Acts, you may be able to count more, where Christians pray together. It's basic to their identity. Many instances they're recording as praying on their own, but so many, 14 times at least, they pray together. That's the case in Acts, the rest of the Bible, the early church, church history, right through 20 centuries. And now with, with all of our technological advances, we're so blessed, aren't we? We can, we can jump in cars or get on buses or trains and we can go and meet with a fellow Christian or Christians. We've got so much technology, we can just pop out the phone and we can pray on the phone. We can FaceTime, WhatsApp, Zoom in and pray with others. So the 21st century church is a praying together church. Is that right? Many Christians during um, the COVID-19 epidemic got inoculated. We got jabbed. Some Christians got a double inoculation. All the evidence suggests that they got inoculated against COVID nineteen, but they also got inoculated against praying with fellow Christians. That's what I observe. In all the places I go with our Christian people. There are marriages and homes. and and friendships, and churches. Where people who used to pray together and raise their voices do it occasionally, on a red letter day. But not much more than that. And everywhere I go, and you may observe the same evidence, vibrant believers are becoming doubting believers. Once joyful believers are becoming fretting, anxious, and sad believers. And nobody seems to know why. But the scriptures make it very obvious that we are called to go together to the Lord in our emptiness, our stress, our worry, but our confidence in Jesus, even if it doesn't feel that confident, and to pray down his power in our lives. And if we won't do that in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture, then all the answers are there. That's where our joy has gone, and our experience of, and our confidence in God's love. Now we might, as we're looking at this passage, say, yeah, well, this is the book of Acts. All sorts of strange and glorious things happened then, which don't happen in the church now. And if that's your kind of reaction, I would say curb your lack of enthusiasm. Curb your lack of enthusiasm. Check your cynicism. There will be more going on in our churches which will make us look like the church of the book of Acts if we trusted the Lord more and prayed together more. Because at the beginning of the episode they're going in there, their weakness and need, and the end of their episode they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and go out on precisely the same mission which got Peter and John in trouble in the very first place. So something was emphatically, dramatically going on in their lives because they prayed together. And do we not long for a richer experience of God and of being used in his purposes? We surely do. Otherwise, we'll switch off the lights, stack up the chairs, lock the door and not bother with any of this. This is why we're here, to know God, to know his power and to be commissioned in his power to be spirit-filled, bold servants. Believers pray together. Secondly, believers pray in the light of Scripture. So they come together and they raise their voices to God. Lord, this is a disaster, they say. Lord, everything has gone wrong. Lord, what have you done? Oh, Lord, what haven't you done? Eyes in your text, please, in your Bibles. Is that what they say? They actually say precisely the opposite. They address God as Lord, verse 24, and as creator. The the word they use is a very unusual word in the New Testament, Sovereign Lord is not one of those words with a big Hebrew background to it, of God's sovereignty over his people and the nations. They actually say, oh, despot. That's the Greek word. And we know the Greek word, oh, a despot? That's like a Timpot dictator, isn't it? Well, lose those connotations, but keep the feel of ultimate power, which cannot be challenged or questioned. And they're saying, look, when these powers are challenging us and harassing us, you have the power. You're on the only throne that matters. And in fact, you're on the throne as creator. There's nothing in this world, Lord, that you're not in charge of. You haven't created. You haven't brought into being. So what do they do? And what should we do with doubting faith? We bring our hearts to the truths of who God is. Because when we go to prayer in need, we know that we're not in charge. And usually we haven't created these circumstances which overwhelm us and depress us and make us anxious and wake us up at four in the morning. So we go to our creator and our sovereign and we set our faith and shape our prayers in the light of who he is. What we don't do is, which is our default, Lord, my life is hard, Lord, I'm sad, so I've stopped reading your Bible. And, and, I, and I don't pray. Of course, you and I, you and I know I think I'm too busy to pray. But actually, we're just we're wrapped up in our sorrow, and maybe our disappointment in God. And God would say to us, "Why are you so disappointed? How, how have I failed you? And have you really come to me and implored me to work in your sorrows?" And struggles we open our Bibles again, we, we, we repent of our unbelief and foolishness, and the Lord says, "Come on let's let 's begin again What's what's the issue what's the problem where's your pain? Sovereign creator, Lord, we go to the God of scripture and we frame our prayers in the light of scripture. The Bible presents a God who's a million times more exciting than the God of our hearts. We often get discouraged because we don't understand God. The Bible says, that's awesome. That's wonderful. We wouldn't want a God we could understand or second guess or anticipate. And that's exactly the God. We get in the Bible, creator, sovereign Lord. How thrilling that he loves us in Jesus and calls us to cast our burdens upon him and to trust him in every moment and in every experience. So that's the second thing. That's what we're learning. It's hard work, isn't it? And it's a discipline. It's an act of will. But we come to the light the scriptures bring. And as we see our great God again, we pray. Thirdly. Believers remember the purposes of God as they pray. God's purposes are always on track, even when our lives feel they have been derailed. God's purposes are always on track, and I love the way the early church shows us this. So, the believers go, verse 25, to Psalm 2. All the psalms are big. This is an Everest psalm in the book of Psalms and the purposes of God. What does Psalm 2 say? Psalm 2 says, God, people hate you and they hate your anointed one, but you have exalted him and lifted him to the highest place and they will do their worst, but they're really stupid because you have enthroned your anointed one. That's what Psalm 2 says is all about. And it ends with a command, you better come to God and find his mercy. And these these first believers are saying, effectively, Lord, we've met your anointed one. This, this psalm has been fulfilled in our lives. This is Jesus. Verse 26. Anointed one, our normal translation is Christ or, or Messiah. Lord, oh, it's Jesus. And they're seeing the nations raging and people plotting against him. They saw that in the events that led to Jesus' arrest and at the trial. And, and that shameful, hideous, obscene crucifixion death. People's plotting, taking their stand against the Lord and against his Christ. Look at verse 27. This is how they see these events pan out in their day. Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, the leaders of the nations and the people of Israel conspiring against your holy servant, Jesus, your your Christ, your anointed one. And then they recognize that the worst of human wickedness, the murder of Jesus, was enfolded mysteriously with the best of God's mercy and saving purposes. Have a look at verse 28, please. An astonishing verse. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What? You read those hideous events of Jesus being arrested, tried, brutalized, and executed. You think that God is absent. That's not what the early church believes. They say God in his strangest ways is very much present. He's using the wickedness of men's hearts, schemes, and behavior, verse 28. And working out what he in his power and will had decided beforehand. The mystery, the drama, the power and purpose of the execution of Jesus. An execution to save you and me from all of our sins. A punishment paid on our behalf. In our place. Jesus takes our wrongdoing and he absorbs God's right, perfect punishment of it. And Jesus dies. And the third day, Jesus is raised again to be the one psalm 2 says has been exalted to the right hand of god the son entrusted with honor and authority and for everybody who puts their trust in him entrusted with saving power so that we're saying this morning as christian people you come to jesus doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what's in your heart what's in your life It doesn't matter if you feel your sins are bad or not. They're just subjectively wicked in God's sight. And they will damn you to an eternity of a punishment you can never repay. So we're saying you must come to Jesus today, who's at God's right hand. And he'll make you clean of all of your sins. And he'll fill you with all of God's love. And you'll know God as your Father, Jesus as your Savior, and as these apostles are experiencing, the Holy Spirit living in you, making you new and giving you power to live a bold, brave life for Jesus. So these apostles and their friends don't crumple. They don't shout out their rage. How could God do this to us of all people? They submit themselves to God's perspective. People hated Jesus enough to crucify him, and the apostles get they hate him and his servants still. And we need to remember that, don't we? Because we are often so surprised, at least we are in the UK, so surprised when people cold shoulder us or rude to us, or or when government makes more and more laws which squeeze out the Christian inheritance and legacy of this nation, why should we be surprised? The human heart is always opposed to God until the human heart is made new. So these these believers don't think that God's plans have been derailed. They're very much on track. And that is the case in your life and all of our lives, in our church's life. Our challenge is, to follow God's purposes and to pray for power. To offer ourselves to those purposes when they're scary and big and difficult and costly. And for that we very much need the power of God which comes from his throne. And so what happens next? Believers pray to be brave servants. We pray to be brave Servants. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. In other words, Lord, this is a really scary situation. They are not backing down. And remember, friends, our circumstances don't back down daily. They just stay. We wake up to them. We go to sleep to them. They're in our heads. They're in our lives. They don't back down. We must not back down in our faith in Jesus. Consider their threats. Lord, consider, oh, I'm so really hard. But he's not saying take away their threats. He's saying, Lord, deal with us in our hearts to carry on to carry on being obedient to Jesus and how we live and how we speak about him enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness great boldness that's a that's an amazing word in the new testament i counted it up last week of all the times this word boldness is used about 10 of them are used to talk about jesus the way he lived and ministered and, and and the other 30 or 31, uh, 20 or 21 rather, are used to describe us, the church, how we must live. And boldness, as it's being used here, means openness or plainness. They're saying, Lord, empower us. We're praying to you. We're asking you. We haven't got it in ourselves to speak your word Plainly, openly, clearly. In other words, well, we don't want to give it a little bit of religious chit-chat. We don't want to think that we've done our duty when we're chatting over the fence with our neighbour, they think, oh gosh, they're really religious, they're really sincere. They go to church every Sunday. What do you think about that? Because that's where some of our relationships have got stuck, isn't it, with our neighbours and our friends. Our neighbours know that we've got this religious thing going on that we're really serious about but they haven't heard the gospel explained to them clearly. We haven't been open. We've been, in a rather casual way, just kind of hinting that we like Jesus. We can't be satisfied with that. I'm not saying rip the fence down and go and and be in their faces in some sort of abrasive, inappropriate way, but don't be satisfied that your friends and neighbours know you're very sincere about your hobby as they understand it. Because they do understand it's a hobby. This passage says, pray a braver prayer. Pray that God would make you brave and open and clear about your faith in Jesus. At this point, we go wrong. We're sitting here, we're thinking... I don't feel very brave. So I'm not very brave. I must pray to feel brave. When I feel brave, my neighbor's going to hear about Jesus. Excuse me, we're not talking about our feelings. You can feel brave and not follow through and do brave things. We're all agreed, yeah? But sometimes you can not feel brave... And out of your mouth come words which actually are really clear and open about Jesus, which takes bravery. And you think, Lord, you have been answering prayers here. You've been changing my heart. Gosh, I feel pretty sweaty. My adrenaline's pretty high. That was a pretty exhausting conversation. I wasn't expecting that. But I have been praying that you make me braver to speak openly and clearly. And of course, heaven says, well, of course, I answered your prayers. So please don't get up, don't get het up on the feelings thing. If I haven't got the feelings, I can't speak. I need the feelings. You don't need the feelings. They're not praying for feelings. They're praying for facts. What do I mean by that? Lord, may... May the facts of our lives be different. We want to hide. We want to keep our heads down. Lord, may the facts of the matter be that next week or next month or next year we have told people in this city that Jesus is the Christ. And as Peter and John told the Sanhedrin, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It is a factual gospel and an urgent gospel. They're saying, Lord, make us the people who speak the facts and are urgent about it. Can we do that? You're thinking, "Mm, maybe, sometimes. Let's just say, no, we can't do that. Let's be honest. We're too selfish. We're too self-centered. Our faith is too weak, we're too cowardly. Let's ask a question. Let's ask the same question. Can we do that? Yes. As we pray. As we say, Lord, I'm empty, fill me. Lord, I'm weak, make me strong. Lord, I am self-protecting, make me self-sacrificial. Lord, I want to hold myself in. Lord, help me pour myself out. If we're not praying for change, we're just not praying at all. Prayer is not a religious box-ticks exercise. Prayer is a, I want things and people and myself to change for your glory, Lord. That is what prayer is, or we are not praying. So, that's what we're doing. We're praying God Make us courageous to speak his word with great boldness. Which kind of goes into my penultimate point. Let's hear it. Believers ask God to achieve what they can't. I think I'm repeating myself here. I hope that's obvious. Prayer is not, Lord, I feel safe with this, and I feel safe with this, and thank you that I feel safe with this. Help me to do it. Amen what's for tea. That's not prayer. Prayer is a lot of, Lord, I am weak, Lord, I am tempted, Lord, I'm foolish, Lord, I'm helpless. Would you? Will you? Please, will you? And friends, sometimes we have to pray that for months on end and maybe years on end. The house doesn't always get shaken straight away. Sometimes the house never gets shaken. It's sometimes, well, sometimes we are shaken quickly. And surprisingly, we say, oh, Lord, I wanted the answer like in in a year's time, and I feel more ready for this answer, but the answer comes more quickly than we want sometimes. But sometimes the reverse is true. But if we are faithfully praying, asking God to achieve what we cannot, he will be delighted and glorified as we cast our weakness on his strength and we're praying to live like and to honor jesus and he will honor us there are no super christians do i need to say that i think i probably do because we've all got as christians we've all got people we put on a pedestal you say that they are great no no they are they are really super christians every person you've ever thought might be a super christian is a person struggling with deep weaknesses, and having made perhaps many disasters in their lives. It's just that they're good at conceiving them, or we don't know them well enough. And everybody we think is a super-Christian who does this ministry so well and has got all their lives together. I tell you what, they're in massive danger. The devil will be out to bring them down, and he'll often bring them down through their own complacency and pride as they realize that they've got their stuff together. So don't think this is a prayer for, for the super-Christians to pray and to have answered and to live out. This is a prayer for all of us. Paul is saying, this is how the early church lives. Sorry, Luke is saying, this is how the early church lives and this is how we should live as well. Their Jesus is our Jesus, exalted to the Father's right hand. Their adopting Father is our adopting Father. Their poured-out spirit is our poured-out spirit. He has not changed, and our needs are just the same. So we pray to ask him to achieve what we cannot. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Friends, that is what we want. That is what we want. We want the most unlikely people to encounter dramatically the power of Jesus to be saved, don't we? (coughs) We want the most broken situations in homes and families to be healed by the power of Jesus. We want the most desperate and vulnerable people in our societies, or the people we know, to have their lives put back together by the power of Jesus. And we want to pray that he'd work out his will in mighty, mighty ways. And he will. Because finally, verse 31, believers who pray are filled with the Holy Spirit and with courage. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I mean, that's awesome, isn't it? That must be absolutely terrifying. They knew that a trainer not just rumbled by, a heavy lorry hadn't come along. As they were picking the bits of brick dust and plaster out of their hair, they thought, God is in this place. But that's not the greatest drama. The greatest drama is that God is working in them. The greatest drama is if God will work in Hope Church powerfully, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The very thing which got Peter and John in such trouble and got them out on license with such threats was they spoke the word of God boldly. And the revealed plan of God is that his servants should speak the gospel boldly. Boldly. So at the end of our passage, what's happening? They've been empowered not to hide, not to have new rulers, or a society which suddenly now is interested in Jesus, but to go out with the the same rulers, the same society, and to speak the word of God boldly. Therefore, to face the same trouble and opposition, but to experience the power of Christ in them. Strengthening them and saving others. They're praying for an experience they did not have, but demanded God that they should have, to be filled with power. And friends, as we finish our few Sunday mornings on prayer, we have the most massive invitation and challenge to our current levels of faith. God is saying, pray. Seek me, expect me to work, honor me with your openness and your need. And our challenge is, do we trust him? Do we want him? Do we long for him? Will we serve him as he answers our prayers? Let's pray, a time to reflect on how God's word these Sunday mornings and this Sunday is meeting us, a time to pray, Lord hear our prayers, meet us in our needs, some here needing to know Jesus as Saviour and Lord for the very first time others needing to open our hearts, perhaps after long months or years, to pray again and to know the invasion of your love and power, all of us, overwhelmed or scared by circumstances, needing faith to be bold and confident in you as we go in the name of Christ. Every single one of us are living flickering brief lives in a world which is dying for the knowledge of Jesus and his mercy. Lord, come in your spirit's power, we pray, to transform and possess that your Son should have the very highest place and our lives be taken up only in his praise and service. Make us a praying people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.